Welcome to Break Fake Rules. I'm Glenn Gallich, and I work at a foundation, the Stubsky Foundation, where we have lots of rules. The whole sector has lots of rules. It's the way we perceive how to do things. But are they the right rules? And are they the right things that we should do when we're giving away money? Some say moving money is really complicated. I say it's not so complicated. It's just the rules that get in the way. So joining me today is one of the great grant makers in our sector, especially in the post-secondary success uh, sector, and that is Jen Wynn, who is the Director of Post-Secondary Success right here at the Stefsky Foundation. Thanks, Glenn, for having me. It's just a tremendous pleasure. You've been with the Foundation now for, what, five years? Five years, Something That's like right. five years. It's yeah. gone by so quickly. I mean, just boom. It has. Boom. There was, a, there was a pandemic in the middle of it, mm -hmm. and that had a huge effect on your work. Absolutely. But before we get into the philanthropy side of things, everyone should know that you are a voracious sports fan. I am. I'm yes. a very voracious and tortured sports fan. <laughs> Is that right? You I come came in here from a great city, that. a great city of I sports. I did, yeah. I'm from Houston mm -hmm. originally, um, where my origin story begins. Um, it's also where the torturous origin story begins <laughs> by being a Houston Astros, Houston Rockets, and apparently a Texans fan, but the Oilers were the team right. of my choosing right. as a kid. But the torturous thing I was going to say was I think the 49ers are going to win the Super Bowl this year, Glenn. So congratulations on that, potentially. I, I mean, I haven't even given any thought to that. I think you have, actually, <laughs> multiple times. Okay, all right. So let's move into philanthropy. This is actually the first and probably the only foundation that I'll work for. Is that right? That is correct, yeah. I'm gonna Are make you that sure you want to tell everybody that? A hundred percent. Okay. Um, because my dominant thing has been, now that I've been in the field for quite some time, Quite some time being five years. Yes. It feels both long and short. <laughs> Believe me, it's not. I feel like I've gotten so much information to come to the conclusion that there are bigger changes that could be made in the world outside of philanthropy. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those changes are about reforming the field itself. Right. But prior to Stepsky, I did work for a number of institutions. I was a college counselor at one of the local high schools here in the Bay Area. And I worked for one of our current grantees, CSU East Bay, out mm -hmm. Hayward. What has been your experience? Let's go to the beginning a yeah. little bit. When you came into the field, you are someone from the field. Mm -hmm. You work. So as coming into the foundation side of things, what was your experience right away? The reason why I decided to take on this role was because I was really excited about being able to learn about all the macroeconomic issues that impacted my day-to-day -day life operating an academic support center at California State University, East Bay. So I was really excited about learning that entire landscape. And I did. But one thing that I figured out very, very quickly, I think is the premise of this podcast, the idea that there are quite a few quote unquote fake rules that dictate the terms of the way that money is filtered to institutions, usually at the perceptions of donors and board members, and sometimes of program officers and directors. And so what began as a journey of thinking, okay, we'll be able to easily deploy funds to these institutions that we all deeply care about that are local, became an exercise of trying to convince folks that these were the right things to do when I made the assumption that we already were on the same page about mm. what the right thing to do was when it came to funding educational institutions. That being said, I think where we are right now is really exciting. I love where the foundation has changed, where we trust the community, we trust our institutional partners, and I think there's just been a lot of dramatic change that we've gone through over the last five years. Yeah, so I'd like to just take a moment and talk about that. I was just thinking, going back in my mind here to when you did arrive, you were handed a strategy. Yeah. You were told, here's the strategy, go deliver it. This foundation went through a dramatic change. We decided, hey, 
maybe that's not the most effective way to do it. The general rule of the sector had been, and for many foundations I think still is, that the donors know best. You've changed that in your own department. You've changed that mindset. Take us through a little bit how you went from, I've been handed a strategy, to turning to someone else for the strategy. What does that mean? Yeah, I can't take total credit over everything. There's been a huge effort to do so internally. But what I will say is when I mentioned that a lot of funding and education is very donor and board driven, that's just not a Stepsky Foundation thing. I think it's a very typical foundation thing. One big piece of context is that for education funders, there's a lot of opinions about education because everybody has been to school and everyone has strong opinions that the thing that worked for them mm -hmm. is what's going to work for another student, Right. even if that student's very different. So one of the things that I'm grappling with is this idea of how all of us can really try to convince folks who may have gone to college, may have become wealthy because they had educational privileges, that their experiences are not the experiences that students right now have. And so one of the big things that we did was we tried to bring in more students mm. into the field mm -hmm. and to introduce their voices into our research and into our strategies. That's one big thing. We have an internship program now that invites young people to get work experience in philanthropy, but most important, they inform our research and our strategy development. The second thing is hiring folks that didn't have any philanthropic experience before. I thought that was an asset, actually, and more field experience and understood the systems and all the challenges and the politics associated with those systems. And I think the third really significant thing is we realize you could spend all this time and money developing a strategic plan. Mm -hmm. But a global pandemic can transpire, a great resignation that impacts labor markets can transpire, and that beautiful plan can go out the door really, really quickly. Mm -hmm. And by the way, that beautiful plan was actually sort of a false intellectual exercise to begin with, which is a whole thing that I have about foundations, is trying to create rigorous plans over what I see to be pretty simple issues that come down to giving money away quickly and valuing relationships. But for some reason, the field tends to want to over-intellectualize these issues and come up with years-long plans that need to be implemented, similar to what I walked into. Mm -hmm. And it was wonderful. It was nice to be able to have that level of research. But things change. Students change. People change. Institutions can change. And I think the moral of the story has been listen to as many people as possible who are experiencing these issues and adapting accordingly. So there it is. You're coming into the foundation world, and you assume that you will have a plan, you will work with a plan, a plan that's been created for you, or a plan that you'll analyze and maybe make some adjustments to. But then as you start to work through it, you see that as kind of a fake rule. Yeah. That needs to change. For sure. Because what's happening? You said a lot just now. So I'm trying to break down a few of mm -hmm. your key points. I'm going to try to bring two together. You went to a particular voice to get a better sense of what's really going on out there. And you said, maybe this rule about outside players who come from elite institutions to help us design a strategy that looks really beautiful, maybe that's a fake rule I should change. Yeah. So there are two big things that happen here. What prompted that for you? What did you see in the way you were operating that made you want to change something? Yeah, I think the first big thing was the pandemic, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the deployment of, you know, we made a lot of investments in advising, for example. And I thought that was a really great idea because I think academic advising is so important. We're still continuing to invest in that line of work. But with that being said, when the pandemic happened, other issues came to the forefront 
financial affordability issues, students needed jobs, they had other things to deal with that were non-academic in nature. And so I think that caused us to shift mm. strategically. Yeah. And then the other thing was when we invite students into our space and into the field, they have just-in-time real information that's able to greatly inform our practices. Because one thing I have to mention is, even though I am a first-generation college student from a working-class background, I don't represent the experiences of a lot of folks who are in school right now. You know, I never went to school during a pandemic. I never had to deal with an isolating remote and virtual learning situation. Mm -hmm. And because I never had to deal with that, and a lot of the research didn't deal with it either, it was best to bring other people who were contending with those issues in real time to be able to greatly inform our next steps. So let's go back and review here. So one of the big rules you've already laid out is you need to get into community. You need to have community voice involved. It can't just be top down. And that is a definite viewpoint of the foundation world, probably a lot of institutional settings where power is concentrated. There's probably a view that if the power is concentrated here, it's the right view. Right. It's the right perspective. You're pressing back on that. You've brought students into the picture. You've also brought staff and advisors from grantees that you right, have right. into the picture. The next thing we're talking about here is that dynamic between institution and community. You're saying... We need not choose between the two. Right. We need to find a, a way to get all, all of this working together. Mm -hmm. What's a third one that comes up for you? What's a third practice you've seen that almost seems like a set rule that the, that the world in which you operate follows? And it may not be beneficial to the communities or the efforts you're trying to bring forward. I, I brought this up earlier, but it was this idea that Sometimes foundations are so obsessed with their own strategic plans, namely mm. the number of people that they're trying to impact and outcomes on graduation retention rates in the mm -hmm. world that I operate in. Yeah. And I'm starting to realize after five years of this work that that's kind of a false practice. And in reflection, if we think about it, let's say a foundation gives out a $100,000 grant. It's pretty substantial for an organization. But in theory, that grant only funds maybe one or two positions, maybe a few components of a program. So the idea that a foundation can make this grand plan and say that by funding bits and pieces of the ecosystem and one section of the ecosystem, that it's going to result in all of this transformative change, to me, is a really false practice mm -hmm. and a practice that we engage in to make ourselves feel rigorous and to make ourselves feel more important mm -hmm. as a field. Yeah. I want to do away with a lot of those outcome metrics. And it doesn't mean that we don't have a level of accountability. I mean, some of my grantees have said, you can be an accountability partner here. But it means that the outcomes need to be driven by the institution and the organization, not by the funder. And anything that we count feels like an artificial practice in many cases. So I don't know why we impose that on our grantees. And I know it's a really frustrating practice because what it ends up doing is we become a compliance partner. As, a, as opposed to an actual thought partner with our grantees? And who would want to be in a relationship with somebody who's just based on compliance? I'm really glad you brought that up because I, um, my, the biggest rule that I think we all follow, it's, a, it's more than a rule, it's a mindset of the foundation and philanthropic world is that the donor is always right. Right. And one of the pieces that comes off of that is because the donor wants to be and is seen as always right, is a desire to see transactional outcomes on the dollars they put out. Right. And it's, it's very, very common. What you're really looking for is attribution for what you've done mm -hmm. versus asking how much have we contributed to an actual problem. 
right. meaning are a solution to a problem, not trying to contribute to a problem. Although foundations definitely contribute. Oh yeah, to problems. we can talk about that too. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So so all of that said, I think this is a very very important point, and I think it's an area in the foundation world that needs much more questioning. Mm -hmm. There are conferences happening as we speak where people are on stage talking about how they get impact and how they see impact. But rarely do we stop and ask, do we really need to? At the end of the day, doesn't that just complicate how you give away money? Right. And, you know, I think whatever we do when it comes to evaluation with philanthropy feels like it's a false exercise. And so the only conclusion that I've reached is that philanthropy shouldn't exist as an institutional entity. Mm -hmm. Because the place in which you can actually measure impact is the billions and trillions of dollars in federal funds for institutions, education, other fields mm -hmm. that you can't do in philanthropy because right. we're only giving things in bits and pieces. Yeah. So my conclusion has been if donors or anyone's interested in those really big impact metrics that we all deeply care about, then being in this field is not the right thing. It's working in government, it's being an evaluator in government, and it's being compliance with government and major public institutions, but not necessarily this place that ends up collecting bits and pieces of impact, but doesn't have a collective story related to it. All right, so let's close on that. What should philanthropy do? There is a lot. I have quite a few sort of stances on this. The big one, which I think is the most important one to me, is I identify as a philanthropic abolitionist. I don't even know if that's an actual term. It is now. But I'll just say it out loud. The more that I'm in this field, the more that I'm convinced that there might be more irreparable harm mm -hmm. than actual good from the field. And I could give you a very specific example related to post-secondary success. There's quite a few wonderful foundations that are huge names in the field. Glenn, I'm just curious, where do you think they got their wealth from? Most foundations? Or post-secondary ones in particular. That's a long list, Jen, but I'd say it's probably extractive in nature. Yeah, and it's specifically student loan administration. Oh, wow. Some of the big luminaries in the field receive their wealth through some level of student loan administration. Mm. And I'm not going to name names because I know a ton of really wonderful folks who work those foundations. So it's not on them individually. But what I'm trying to reconcile is this idea that there is a series of entities that gather wealth from extracting wealth from students mm -hmm. and then returns that wealth through a few programs here or there that impact maybe a small fraction of their customers. For me, that imbalance is really, really hard for me to reconcile. That's a really big idea in many cases, and philanthropy is usually a symptom, institutional philanthropy, not just the act of charity and giving things away. I yeah. think most people can do that informally, yeah. and I absolutely support that. Yeah. But this institution as a, as a tax shelter for me, feels really, really problematic. And I know it feels a little contradictory because I work here at mm -hmm. a foundation, so I have to reconcile with my own positionality in this as well. But that's the first thing on my mind. All of this, though, is a symptom of greater wealth disparity. But if we kind of step back and go, what is it going to take to get there? I think the first step is really advocating for a higher mandated payout than 5%. I think that's the first step, and that's the thing that I really want to see by the time this foundation closes or even beyond, is foundations being expected to do a payout that's a lot higher than 5% because there's all this wealth that's locked up that has been taken from the community that needs to be distributed back to the community until we could actually find a better solution, which to me is a more progressive taxation system. I certainly hope at the end of the day, your call right there, that we're able to play a role 
in striving beyond the 5%. We certainly have, and you've done a tremendous job in your division to move enormous amounts of capital well beyond 5%. I don't even think you think about it. And that's partly because we're a spend down. And that is in itself one of the first major rules we've broken. No perpetuity, let's just move the money. So yeah. thank you, Jen, so much for sharing a lot today and, and so much covered and so many great rules that you've broken. I really appreciate that. Thanks, Glenn. Thank you, Jen. And thank you for joining us at Break Fake Rules. We'll have another one up very soon. Next time on Break Fake Rules, we'll hear from Sarah Longwell, founder of Republican Voters Against Trump, publisher of The Bulwark, and host of the Focus Group podcast. This isn't just, it's not a problem for Republicans, right? It's an American problem. Of course. And so it's got to be one of these things we all work to solve together. Thank you for tuning in to Break Fake Rules. This show is brought to you by the Stubsky Foundation, where we are returning all our resources to the communities we call home in Hawaii and the San Francisco Bay Area by 2029. Our producer extraordinaire is Claire Callahan. The show is mixed and edited by Patrick Childers of Odd Conduit Media. Special thanks to our videographers and visual production team who fly from all over the world to be a part of this, Steve Johnson and Brooke Van Dam of Sea Boundless. Subscribe to the Stepsky Foundation YouTube channel to watch videos of each episode. You can find us on YouTube by searching Stepsky Foundation. We hope these conversations don't end here, so join the conversation with me on LinkedIn.